the RPI is really flawed. I'm in the mindset of taking the 64 best teams, however you want to determine that. And I don't think there are 63 teams better than Kansas State. I know Coach Hughes certainly doesn't think so. That was college baseball analyst Peter Flaherty. He's our guest on the Base Path Podcast. Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. It's a busy time of year in baseball with the D1 Regionals getting ready to start this weekend. I'm in studio with Matt Feld and today's guest is a college baseball analyst and MLB draft expert with Baseball America, Peter Flaherty. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk some college baseball with you guys. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on. I, we've, I, I've had you on before when you were working with the Katuit Cape League team and you were bringing in players and scouting also as part of Matt Hyde's group that was working for the Yankees. So this is a new role for you, but it's a, it's a great time to have you on and I really appreciate you taking the time. Now, what, I guess the biggest takeaway, the biggest storyline in New England is up until about last weekend, we were all hoping to have a Boston Regional with BC hosting. They were right on that line, 16-17, and they ended up not getting one. What were your impressions of that? Did you think they deserved one, or how did, that, how did you feel about that? So I thought they were 100% deserving of one. Even putting all of the, the Northeast hasn't hosted a regional in 30-something years, putting that narrative aside, you're looking at a team, 35 wins, 16 wins in the ACC. They've got 20 wins against top RPI, top 100 RPI teams, including 13 against the top 50. Um, and their RPI alone is sitting at, was sitting at 18th, which when talking about hosts, that's a range that like you kind of want to be in. Obviously, the top 16 as a power five team is more or less a slam dunk to be a host. But even into that like 22, 23 range, you're in a decent spot, especially for a team of BC's resume. So I was kind of banking on that Chestnut Hill, Brighton Regional. All the, the signs were kind of pointing towards that. They had lost to Clemson in what was a really good game in, in their second game of pool play of the ACC tournament. And I was sitting there thinking, well, if they had won that game, they would have been a slam dunk to host. There was zero doubt about it. They would have, they would have been hosting. I didn't think that a tightly contested four to one loss against what is now a, a top five team in the country. I didn't, I didn't think that was going to be the straw that broke the camel's back. So I was, I was pretty surprised. And then going back to it, this is as good of a chance in however many years the committee has had to, to have an on-campus Northeast regional. And it was a team that was very deserving of it. So I was surprised that they didn't get a regional. I think that all 16 teams that got one are deserving of it, but I think that BC was was especially deserving of it. Just the turnaround they had, the metrics, their resume alone, they were, I, I can't imagine that there's going to be as good a case as the 2023 BC Eagles to host for however long. UConn's always in the mix, but being in the Big East, it's a little bit to their detriment because they almost got to, they almost have to run the table and and win at least 40 games to even be considered a host so it's really difficult for the Huskies and then for BC it's like they play in the ACC so the schedule is never going to be easier a cakewalk so surprise but I know that they're going to head down to Tuscaloosa with a with a pretty big chip on their shoulder and I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to be going up against coach Gambino's group this week 
Peter, outside of Boston College, you mentioned Connecticut, Maine, Northeastern, the other three Northeast teams that are participating in a regional. Outside of BC, which of those three teams kind of catches your eye when you look up at the regionals they're playing in? And, and which of those three teams do you think has got the best chance to make some noise in the regional that they're in? So I think Northeastern's an extremely exciting team. I, in my opinion, they got a tough draw. I know it's they're not going to get rewarded because they're a, a non-Power 5, non-conference champ. But if you look at their schedule, 44 and 14, 18 and 8 in true road games, they have a lot of marquee wins too. They swept Indiana State, who is the number 14 overall seed. They've beaten Duke. They've beaten BC. They can really play. I was kind of hoping they'd go literally anywhere but Winston-Salem <laughs> because Wake is Wake for my money's worth. Even with all the number one overall seed curse, I guess you could call it. They're they're my favorite to win it. So the fact they got sent to Win Winston Salem isn't a death sentence because I know with Coach Glavin and and, and how he coaches his guys, they're not going to be scared of anything and they're not going to go in there kind of with their tails between their legs. So Northeastern's going to be really exciting up and down the roster. Mike Sirota leads headlines them. He'll he'll probably be a top twenty pick I'd say next year. And then on the mound, they can pitch it top to bottom. They've got a team ERA of about three five and. Even Cabral, the true freshman, has just been outstanding. And and so is Wyatt Scotty and, and Eric Yost. So really difficult regional with them, Wake Forest and Maryland. But I also like Maine. Maine going down to Coral Gables, that's not going to be, I don't think, an easy game for Miami. Maine, we saw all year, they, they ran through the America East. They took a series on the road against, or not on the road, they took a, a neutral site series against Pitt. Uh, they... They can really swing it when you look at Quinn McDaniel up at the top. He'll probably be, a, would say, a, a day two draft pick somewhere. And then Jeremiah Jenkins kind of really, really came on for the Black Bears. He had 380 with 20 home runs. And, and Jake Reynas over on the, the middle infield, he can really run and, and hit for both average and power. So I think that while Northeastern and Maine have, I'd say, pretty big uphill battles, I'd say that BC's probably got the best shot to to emerge from from their regional as a champion. But, you know, I I, I really think that if any team is going to come out of that Winston-Salem regional other than Wake, it's going to be Northeastern. I should also note Central Connecticut is in the in the tournament, too. They're, they'd probably be like your 15 or 16 seed if this was a, a NCAA basketball tournament. But they they did win the NEC, so we'll give them credit for that. Peter. Wanted to ask you about BC. What do you think changed this year? Because they were like a 10-win team last year. I know that they had Flynn was a, a great transfer get for them. But a lot of their core guys were there last year. Like Travis Honeyman was there. Vetrano was there. And they, they both those guys had great years last year. What do you think changed for BC this year? So I'll wear this one. I was kind of looking at their roster and who they, they were going to lose from last year and, and kind of looking at where they would maybe get better. And I, I was one of probably everyone outside of that BC clubhouse who, who didn't, who, who kind of struggled to figure out how BC was going to make regional or, or even kind of compete as well as they did in the ACC. So I, I was, I could not have whiffed harder on that, but pitching coach Kevin Vance, I think gets a ton of credit in just watching them pitch. They're always in attack mode and never really back on their heels. They're pounding the strike zone. They're going after hitters. They live around the strike zone and it's, 
it's an old adage in baseball, but it's pitching and defense. They they field the ball cleanly, like any ground ball you see hit, any fly ball, it's going to get fielded cleanly, and they're not going to give teams free bases. They're not going to give them free outs. And overall, it's it's just a scrappy, scrappy bunch. You've got Joe Vitrano at the plate, obviously, who's who's been excellent. I think 305, 18 home runs. He's He's got some of, if not maybe the most raw power in the ACC. Maybe not the most, but he's got some of it. And other than that, it's just a bunch of guys who really compete hard. I know with Travis Honeyman being out and Cameron Leary being out, people were kind of looking at that as this is where maybe the wheels will fall off because it was down the stretch where they were still kind of needing a couple nice series wins. And they got him. It's just kind of that next man up mentality. Everyone's ready to to carry their weight. So. It's just a bunch of guys who aren't going to roll over. And then I think that the the biggest the biggest area of improvement for them and, and why they've excelled is that pitching staff. You mentioned Chris Flynn. The the step forward that John West has taken has been unbelievable. It's just kind of been this constant upward trajectory in his BC career coming from from St. John's High School. He's gotten better and better this year. He's Lowered his arm slot a little bit. Pitch shape has really improved. He's turned himself into a legit draft prospect. And then out of the bullpen, another transfer like Chris Flynn, Andrew Roman has just been a legitimate lights out guy at the back end of the bullpen. So they have, I mean, they have the makings, especially on the pitching staff of a team that can really go far and that can kind of, I guess, last, if you want to say, if, if that's the right word for it, or or be competitive in a regional that might go to the maximum amount of games. Peter, just looking at the NCAA tournament as a whole, Pete Hughes, the Kansas State baseball coach who's from up here from Brockton, ripped the NCAA yesterday after they did not qualify or were not admitted into the tournament, saying that the, the NCAA is too reliant on RPI and they weren't looking at head-to-head records. Now Kansas State had performed against other teams in their conference that had made the tournament. The West Coast got snubbed, some would say in some respects, with, with USC and Arizona State not making the tournament despite finishing well above 500 in their conference. Well, Arizona did. They finished 12 and 18 in their league. How do you just kind of sum up in your eyes after every tournament, whether it's basketball, baseball, the, the college playoff, there's always there's always critics. Do you feel like currently the criticism that's being hurled towards the NCAA selection committee is warranted or is it just another year where people are upset that some teams didn't make it and other teams did? So... It it's such a it's a tricky question because there's no doubt there are flaws in the RPI. I have my own thoughts on it, but I think that there's no bigger endorsement or I guess positive sign for change as John Cohen going on TV who's the committee chair and also saying that I'm I'm mincing words here, I think, but that more or less that the RPI is broken and and that he agrees that it needs to change. So I think that's a positive sign. But I agree that it's really flawed. I'm in the mindset of taking the 64 best teams, however you want to determine that. That's that's not up to me, but I'm under the mindset of you take the 64 best teams in the country and you put them in the tournament. And I don't think there are 63 teams better than Kansas State. I know Coach Hughes certainly doesn't think so. Um, and then you mentioned the West Coast as well. Most notably, in my mind, you've got UC Irvine, who didn't make it. They were 38 and 17 overall RPI inside the top 50, almost 20 conference wins, and they went eight and one against the Pac-12. So I I'm not quite sure how that's not worthy of at least an at-large bid. And in terms of reforming the RPI and fixing it, it's a little easier said than done because 
when talking about all these teams' resumes on TV and you hear all these top 50, top 100 wins, that's all based on RPI. So it's going to be work to reform it. There will never be a perfect system because there's always going to be, no matter what the committee uses to determine what they think are the is the field of 64 and, and the 64 top teams, there are always going to be people who are unhappy or there are going to be teams that the metric that they use or the system they use is unfriendly towards. But I think almost unanimously across college baseball, maybe not unanimously, but the vast majority agree that RPI is kind of, it's not the best, it's not the best thing to use. So I'm hopeful that there's change coming. It sounded pretty positive on TV that there was, but I think for people listening to keep in mind, it's, it'll, it'll take a little while for that change to, to happen. It's not just going to be overnight, but I think year by year, you're going to see a, a much better system implemented. Peter, I wonder what you think of UConn's season so far. Oh, just without really digging into it, I'm kind of like, oh, they probably had a better year last year. With, but, you know, you're not going to win 50 games every year. That last year was just an unbelievable year for UConn. This year, still 43 and 15. They didn't win the Big East tournament, but they were the regular season champion. Do you think, I know they kind of leaned into the strategy of really dipping into that transfer portal a little earlier than some of these New England programs. It seems like that's a lot more widely accepted and a strategy that a lot of D1 coaching staffs are using now. Do you think that kind of margin of like that advantage maybe that they had for dipping in earlier, it, they've lost that a little bit because other programs have gotten into the transfer portal just like they have? I wouldn't say they've lost it. I think Coach Penders and his staff are, they're excellent what they do. They know how to identify talent and they know kind of the nooks and crannies to look in because you see all these high profile and, and power five transfers get into the portal and, and other contributors around the country and everyone's kind of on them. But the Ben Hubers of the world, the guys who are coming from non-division one schools, those aren't necessarily the most sought after guys. They, they unfairly get overlooked because of where they play. And it's just kind of assumed that they'll end up making the jump to maybe a mid-major or something. But credit to Coach Penners and his staff. They do their due diligence of getting after these guys. And Huber, looking at, at him for UConn this year, he hit 330 with 20 doubles and 16 home runs. So I think that they're always going to have, they're, they're going to get a lot of, both notable transfers. And I also think some of these sleeper guys as well, just because they know where to look. They're so plugged in in the Northeast to to really all these schools and, and around the country. So I don't think that they lost their advantage. I think that other teams might figure out how to better use the portal, but I, I don't think, and I don't expect UConn's effectiveness in both recruiting at the high school level and also in the portal to kind of fall off. It's just that staff is just too good, and that program has has built up so much notoriety, both regionally and also nationally. That it's they've built so much momentum; it's going to be tough to to fall off. Speaking of the speaking of the portal, if you look at your coverage or just Baseball America's coverage in general, or D one baseballs across the board, a lot of it's hovered around. If it's not around regional coverage, it's around the transfer portal. I think it was over six hundred players in each of the last two days that have gone into the portal. And we're not just talking about any random players or anything like that. We're talking about some of the best players in the country. You mentioned that the SoCon player of the year, Ryan Galani, is in the portal now and, and other very talented players that are looking for either a, a higher major home or, or maybe just looking for a, for a fresh start. It's a, it's a topic that's constantly exhausted, I, I guess, and it certainly gets, it gets plenty of news and plenty of coverage. But what's kind of your outlook and your take 
overall when you look across the NCAA and there's going to be more players to come as teams are eliminated on sort of the the fluctuation going on across college baseball right now where, where a lot of programs struggle to sustain their rosters for a large extended period of time? Yeah, it's, man, this is, that's a great question because I'm for the transfer portal. I like to think I'm, I, man, it's a, it's a tough one. I, I think that it all comes down to at the end of the day, you want the player and you want this kid to make the, the right choice for his future. And that's what it comes down to. So many of these guys commit when they're 15 or 16, which we won't have anymore, given the new rules with the NCAA that you can't commit until I think after your junior year. But it's a lot to ask for a, a teenager to make a life changing decision and have him stick with it, which I, I think that this new rule is going to help with the with the portal and maybe calm it down a bit because the kids and the families are going to have a better feel of what that team might look like, what what his future is going to look like. But for now, it, it's just kind of the wild, wild west between NIL stuff. And and again, you can just kind of enter the portal willy nilly. It's if I'm a player, I, I think that on the one hand, like if I were a, a really good player at a quality mid-major program, I'm starting every day. I'm playing 55 games a year. I'm, I'm having really good success there. I know I'm the the focal point of that team. I'm I'm sticking it out, and I'm going to remain loyal to that team. If, if you can play and 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 you're a legit draft prospect, you'll be found wherever you play, whether you play at LSU or Harvard or Princeton, anywhere in the country. If you if you can play, you'll get seen and you'll get found. So that that's kind of my mindset. And then on the other hand, coaching staff changes. I think with with the ever-changing staffs around the country. And if I think that's where the portal might be of an advantage to a player, because depending on who the new staff is, it's you could kind of find a better fit elsewhere maybe, or you could follow your old coach or an old coach on the staff to wherever he goes. So I think it could help there. I do think it needs to be regulated a little bit just because we've seen even in the last week where or the last three days when it's opened, the portal opened and it's just kind of, I mean, it's been nuts. You've got, I know I highlight some guys on my Twitter, but that's only the, that's not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you've got hundreds in there and then it's only going to get crazier once these teams get bounced from regionals because inevitably you'll see guys bounce from these regional teams. So I think I'm for it to an extent. I, I really do think there needs to be regulations behind it I and mean, it needs to be less like a free agency period and more like, I think tailored towards someone making a warranted and logical decision because I, I yeah, no, that's I'll stop there, but I, I, I'm for it. I just think it needs to be, it just needs to be toned down a little bit. Yeah. You've mentioned highlighting guys, big names who are, are entering the portal. One guy in new England who I think we'd probably all agree the transfer portal is a good thing for was Caleb Spur, who went to Endicott. They're actually in the D3 college world series now. He had a great career there, and now he's going to get a postgraduate year, I guess, or uh, he's going to earn a graduate degree at UConn, and he's going to be a nice addition for them. Have you heard of any other, I know guys are just kind of getting into the portal, but have you ever, have you heard of any other big additions yet for New England programs that guys coming through the portal? So I, you made an excellent point there with Spur. Um, I think that's where the portal is so I think it's fantastic because Caleb Spur is a, for those listening, he's an excellent player up at Endicott. He played on the Cape League last summer. 
for a little bit with Hyannis. He's a super fun player to watch. I think in terms of getting eyes on you, I think that that he's really using it to his advantage because he'll graduate from Endicott. He'll he'll make the jump from Division Three to Division One, and he's got a chance to really make a name for himself. And so I think one, he'll be a contributor for UConn because you look at the transfers they bring in, and they don't really bring in anyone that they don't plan on on using a lot, or at the very least, giving giving the player a chance to really prove it. So I think he'll thrive there. And in terms of other recruits, I haven't heard of any or or players. I haven't heard of anyone that's going to enter the portal there will be some i think especially after the tournament dies down it's you kind of have these waves where you'll get the pre-tournament guys who enter and then post-tournament you'll have more guys enter so i i haven't heard of any yet but i'm sure that there will be some there always are and uh, there are a lot of quality smaller programs around the northeast you look at rhode island college east connecticut state they they've got guys who can really play so I have no insight on who might be entering, but for for kind of these better players on really good small school teams, even Southern New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce, if they were to enter, they they'd they'd get Division One looks. So it'll be it'll be fun to follow. You spent plenty of time around the Cape League, of course, with Katuit, but seeing but seeing every team down there play. Something that I when I talk to coaches, not just up in the Northeast, college coaches, but but across the country, one thing that they've become a little trepidatious about is what we've been talking about is that the players go up there and they become feeders, not just for agents, which has always been part of it, but also for other programs as well. And they become pretty much recruited by other teammates to enter the transfer portal. And I I don't need you to get specific on whether you've seen it yourself, but do you think that's a fair concern for coaches that they're sending their players on, not just to the Cape League, but the Futures League, NECBL, the Alaskan League, and all of a sudden their players become poachable to, to other programs with the way the system works now? It is. I think it's a valid concern. I don't think it's of of the level where these quality mid-major or smaller schools shouldn't send their guys up there, but it does happen. And like you mentioned, it happens across all summer leagues. And I think that the seriousness of it is to a varying degree. Obviously, you'll have the the joking around in the dugout being like from, from a one teammate to another, like, hey, enter the portal, come pitch for us. And they'll kind of laugh it off and and nothing will come of it. But as you mentioned, whether it's guys entering the portal or guys who are already in the portal, there are going to be college coaches flock to the Cape to watch their guys pitch. And then if they see a portal arm they like or a portal player they like, they'll obviously hop on them. And then again, when you kind of talk about these, the smaller school guys, then it's kind of a little, little bit of a danger zone with if they were to get poached. But I, I think that while it happens, I don't think it's as rampant as, as one might think. And it, and it really hasn't been too, too big of an issue, at least to this point. But it does happen, and it, and, it, and it stinks that it does. But again, kind of like the RPI in the tournament, with it being all that we have right now, until the portal changes, like it's going to happen. So it's, it, it's, it's a little unfortunate it does, but it's, it's nothing too, too bad. Peter, I know I mentioned that you've done some scouting with Matt Hyde's group with the New York Yankees for the MLB draft and that now you're covering it for Baseball America and you do a really good job with that. I wonder, would you be up for some quick hitters if I give you a name of somebody, you could just guess whereabouts in the draft they would go? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I might end up with a pie on my face, but I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you about 10 or 12 guys. I'm, I'll say the player, you just tell me what round you think they're going to go. Yeah. Matt, Matt Shaw from Maryland, he is a Worcester Academy alum. First round. 
Joey Vetrano from DC. Middle round, somewhere on take two, I'd say seven to 10. Okay. Thomas White. First round. But I will say, we saw it last year, and we see it sometimes with these prep pitchers. They can kind of be bought down. If you don't see him go in the first round or on day one at all, I, I wouldn't freak out and be like, oh, wow, Thomas White's going to Vanderbilt. There's a chance he could sign later in the draft for a lot of money in, in first round slot. But, well, I don't think that'll happen. So I'll say first round again. Okay. Hunter Owen from Vanderbilt, who is from South Portland, Maine. Ooh. If he stayed healthy, uh, and when I say stay healthy, he was really on the out because he was he was just a little tired, which I I make him sound soft, but he was he was gassed. He he was thrown a lot, so I'd say around three to six. Travis Honeyman from BC, second to fourth. Sean Sullivan from Wake Forest, who went to Tabor Academy. Oh yeah, I remember watching him at Tabor. Actually, I was the only I was the only scout there, which was which was a lot of fun. And I, I was impressed with him, which I know is very easy for me to say now. But I'll say for Sean, rounds three to five. Bishop Hendrickson High Schooler Alex Clemmy. Top two rounds. Oh, wow. All right. Let's see. Jay Driver from Harvard. Man, I, one, I was a fan of Jay last spring and watching him pitch. I, it's funny. I, I didn't know who Jay was until I was watching Harvard and Cal Poly. I was actually watching Adam Stone pitch against Brooks Lee. Adam's now with the Yankees. But I saw Jay come in and I was like, who is this kid? Because he struck out Brooks Lee on a really good slider. He was fired up on the mound. I was like, man, this kid is awesome. And so I became a fan of him then. And then he was he tore it up on the Cape. I know this is not so much of a quick hitter, but I'll say for Jay, like rounds, Round six to eight, maybe five to eight, I think that range. Yeah, I feel like he could have maybe jumped a little bit, but he was a little inconsistent as a starter, but he, he still had good strikeout numbers for sure this spring. Yeah, he's got great stuff, and and I, he's on a Cape roster. He's back with Hyannis. I don't, with innings limits and stuff, I don't know who's showing up and when, but he has that option to go back to the Cape pre-draft, which I think would be great, so... All right, I got three or four more. You said Quinn McDaniel might be like mid-second day. Yeah, I'd say six to nine for Quinn McDaniel. Okay. Ian Cook from UConn. Oh, he's a difficult one because I know he's sophomore eligible. I'll say for Ian Cook, I'll say he goes back to UConn and sticks in that weekend rotation. Okay. Wyatt Scotty from Northeastern. Mm. I'd say day three, but again, similar to Cook. I know that uh, with Wyatt, he's a junior and I know that He'll, he, he's got draft interest. So I'll say somewhere on day three. All right. I, I've only got two more for you here. I've got Jake Berger from Harvard and Jake Elbury from Richmond, who is from North Andover and went to Austin Prep. Yeah. So for Jake Berger, I think, again, I know he's got eligibility left at Harvard. I think he's going to have another great summer wherever he wherever he decides to play this summer. I know that he had a, he had a good year at Harvard and with with the Harvard kids, it's tough because Corona canceled the obviously the 2020 and then they didn't have a 2021 season. So he just got through his second college year. So I think he'll he'll go back to Harvard next year and, and earn his degree and, and and continue his excellent play. And then Jake Elbery from he was from Austin Prep. Now he's playing at Richmond. Yeah, with Jake, I know he's another sophomore eligible guy, big kid, 6'4", had a really good freshman year, had a strong sophomore year too. I think he ends up going back to Richmond and like Jake, I think he continues to 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 play well. 
Peter, just to follow up on the Thomas White thing really quick, especially just because of his commitment to Vanderbilt, like like Alex Clemmie, I feel like in a lot of these circumstances, there are negotiations that, of course, happen between teams and the player before the draft to determine whether the player is actually truly interested in signing, because if they get a feeling that he's not, of course, you're not going to waste a first round pick on somebody to, to that degree. Do you have any, I mean, I'm not, I'm not asking you for insight, but just based on your outside perspective and situations like this, just because of the school, I feel like Virginia sometimes in a similar situation, just because the program's so highly thought of, high academics, of course, a program that pretty consistently is competing for for a college World Series. Do you feel like Thomas White and, and Alex Clemmie are two players that might actually end up signing out of high school, or would you pretty be pretty surprised if they if they surpass the opportunity to go to Vanderbilt? So, as you mentioned, with any of these high academic programs, you talk about Stanford, Vanderbilt, UVA. There are more out there. Those are kind of the the three big ones where you see all these high profile high school kids commit to, and they're they're legit draft prospects. But you kind of know that it's going to be tough to get them to 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 bypass three or four years or two in some cases if you're a sophomore eligible. But it's going to be hard to get them to bypass that commitment to to such an excellent academic institution. And you know that their price will be relatively high to sign it's not going to be easy to sign them but i think with with thomas and alex i think that they'll i think that while it's never easy to 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 go around or not go around i think to to not attend vanderbilt and and go right into professional baseball i think while it's incredibly difficult and a decision that I know both of them are really going to think about a lot. It's 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 far from an easy one. I think that they'll each sign their respective contracts with the teams that draft them and head to professional baseball. But it's it it won't be an easy one. So I I don't envy them in that. But I think that come come July they will uh, we'll we'll see them in professional baseball. Nice, Peter. You're are you up for hanging in there for the three up three down segment? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Let's go to. Producer Dave for the three up, three down. Three up, three down. Yes, gentlemen, welcome back once again to three up, three down, where I give you three questions about the game of baseball. And then I tell you that you're wrong and you're, you've struck out. Now, there are no wrong answers, just for fun. We can start with our guest, Peter. Peter, here's the question. What's the greatest catch of all time? In Major League Baseball, or if you if you like, the greatest catch you've ever witnessed. The greatest catch of all time. I gotta go with the Willie Mays over the shoulder catch. Mm. Vic Wertz. Off the bat of Vic Wertz. Good, good one. Dan, would you like to take the same question? Please? Yeah, I'm gonna go Kenny Lofton. He got he was a if you've ever seen him dunk a basketball, it's incredible because he's not that tall. I'm making like he's still this athletic, but but back when he was playing, <laughs> uh he was like, I don't even know if he was six feet tall. But he had a catch where like his hip is at the wall. It wasn't a very, I think it was like an eight foot fence, but it was an amazing catch. Look it up if you've, I'm sure it's on YouTube, but he was a great athlete. I, I'll take Kenny Lofton. Mm. Matt, the catch that's often forgotten because the Mets lost the game, but Andy Chavez made an incredible catch against Scott Rowland in the 2006 Game 7 National League Championship Series to keep the game tied. Full extension arm, full speed over the wall. That's probably the best catch I've ever seen. Wow. Going deep on that one. Literally. <laughs> literally. Okay, this one, Matt, we'll start with you, and then we'll go back around the horn the other way. What was your favorite moment that you recall playing Little League or youth baseball? Ooh, I hit a three-run home run, the only one in my career in Little League ball, so that's by far the, the best memory I have. 
Did the whole team greet you at home plate? They did. Smack you on the helmet? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dan? When I was 11, we were in the, it was the 10 to 12 year old. Those teams go to the Williamsport World Series. But anyway, this was regular season. My team made it to the championship series game one. I think I was like two for three with a, a couple RBIs. We ended up winning game one in a three game series. So if you were to stop my career right there, that would have been the pinnacle of it. We ended up losing the last two games in that series, and then the rest of my baseball career wasn't that great. Am, you, am you, I allowed to cheat a little bit and go to high school, or do I have to stick within the Little League? We'll let rank? you go to high school. We'll let you go to high school. All right. Favorite high school memory, Belmont Hill, my senior year. We beat St. Sebastian's on the road. Eight, I think it was 8-2 to two we beat them. So arch rival getting a win on the road, that was absolutely my favorite memory from my playing days. I think Peter did that just to tweak me because I went to Milton Academy. We always lost. We always lost to Belmont Hill. We beat him that year too, so I can attest to that. Yeah, there we go. Okay. For the final question of three up, three down, I'm mixing it up a little bit. This will be, in fact, a trivia question, so there is a, a correct answer. And Peter, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Everyone gets a different question, but then I'll have you guys chime in if the, if the original answer doesn't get it. Peter, what franchise in Major League Baseball has the most World Series losses? Oh, games or games yeah. or series? No, series. Series. Actually, okay. made it to the World Series and lost it. Which team oh. has the most? Man, that's a tough one. Cardinals. Cardinals. Okay, I'm going to let you guys guess too because uh, that might not be the right answers. <laughs> um, definitely not. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the Cincinnati Reds. Okay, how about you, Dan? I guess I'd say Yankees, just because they've been there so much. All three are wrong, so not too well done there. Dan, you are the closest. The Yankees have lost 13 times, eclipsed only by the Dodgers. 14 losses for the Dodgers. Don't, for, don't forget all those games they lost against the Yankees. <laughs> Question for you. We'll start with you, Dan, on this one. Who is the only Major League Baseball player to play more than 500 games at five different positions? Wow. Oh, man. I'll give you a hint. This player is not in the Hall of Fame. Maybe that wasn't a good hint. Every time I think of somebody moving all over <laughs> yep. the field and playing different positions, I think of Jose Okendo, but okay. I don't think it was 500 at each position. All right, we will accept that guess. Matt, would you like to guess? Well, I was going to guess Craig Biggio, but he is in the Hall of Fame, so that's not going to work. I shouldn't have said that. Let me. We'll let Matt no. stew a minute there. Peter, do you have a, do you have a guess? So oh, I actually know this one. Oh. I was watching MLB Network and... It came up and it stuck with me, and you you confirmed it with the not Hall of Fame. It's Pete Rose. That's right. That's right. Oh wow! Very good, Peter. Yeah. Pete, oh yeah. That's kind of a trick. Pete Rose played 628 games as a second baseman, 673 in left field, 939 at first base, 634 games at third base, and 590 games in right field. Okay. And for the final question, we'll start with you, Matt. Who is the only switch hitter in Major League Baseball his history to hit two Grand Slam home runs in the same game, one from each side of the plate? Is it Carlos Beltran? It might be, but we're going to let other people guess. Dan? Eddie Murray? Good guess. Bill Peter. Miller? Bill Miller is correct, and our oh. guess nails it, yes. I swear, I, I promise I didn't Google, but I, I'm not a Red Sox fan. I, I remember the game Bill Miller did it. Was it against the Yankees, too? No, it was actually... At Rangers Ballpark in all, oh, against well. the Rangers, 2003, he, he was the only player to do it. First, the first Grand Slam came in the seventh, and the second came in the eighth. He also had a solo home run in the third inning. I had forgotten the day that Bill Miller turned into Babe Ruth. 
a switch hitting Babe Ruth. Very good. You did outstanding work on three up, three down. Peter, congratulations. A pack of 1979 Topps baseball cards with stale chewing gum is in the mail to you. Well done. <laughs> the gum's the best part. It's like a Cape Cod chip. <laughs> Thanks to Baseball America analyst Peter Flaherty for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. Music.